Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to Genesis chapter 3. All that is in the world. In the first five verses of Genesis 3, we've been introduced to a new person in the created order. He comes through a serpent, the most subtle of any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. As best we can tell, however, this is a spiritual being, a fallen angel who sought and indeed still seeks to exalt himself above God, that old serpent, the devil, or Satan. He is the great accuser of the brethren, the scriptures call him. He is the slanderer and a liar from the beginning. We then go on to witness one of these very lies. He speaks to the woman in the garden and asks if God is really withheld from them eating of any tree of the garden. In this, Satan is taking what is more or less a true statement that God has indeed withheld something from them in a sense, and he is layering on top of that truth a twisted perspective. Not that God has given them every tree but one and is indeed supplying every necessity and every desire within virtue, but rather... He twists that and says, God is withholding something from you, which in itself is fine, other than the fact that God has prohibited it, right? The fruit was fruit. When Eve bites into the fruit, she doesn't find out it's actually wax. It is fruit. It is real. It is something. And that in and of itself is legitimate, natural. But God has prohibited it. Now, the woman handles this situation very well at the beginning. She insists that this is not the case. God has given them every tree but one and reveals to us that she and her husband were fully aware of the consequences should they rebel against God, that the day they eat thereof, they would surely die, telling Satan this fact. Now, Satan continues his lie by imposing a false motive on God's prohibition. He tells Eve that they would not die when they eat of the fruit, but much to the rather, that in the day that they eat thereof, they would be as gods, knowing good and evil. Their eyes would be opened. They would be enlightened, indeed. Uh, the path to Satan's kingdom, the path to uh, the, 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 the realm of, of Satan's philosophy, the path of humanism is always paved with promises of enlightenment. And so he questions God's motives, in the prohibition of the tree. He manipulates the perspective of the situation. He paints God as withholding something which is fundamentally good. For whatever reason, God might choose to withhold this. Maybe because God doesn't want them to be happy. Maybe because God is jealous. Maybe because God is envious. Maybe because God doesn't understand them. Uh, maybe because God's afraid that man will reach his fullest potential. Whatever it might be, uh, he, he casts doubt on God's intentions and on God's motives. He twists the love and protection of God and he turns it into malice. He twists love into hate, which is what we talked about last week. A propensity in all of our hearts to take those things which are the outworking of love toward us in our lives and to twist them, to in interpret them instead as hate or judgment or condemnation or uh, whatever it might be. So we've considered together all of those tactics. We've considered what Satan is doing and now we see the weapon that he uses, the weapon at Satan's disposal in order to bring about these temptations. It was just a little over a year ago that we last spoke about the enemies in our spiritual warfare. I was thinking about that as I was writing this sermon, that spiritual warfare series was only 
last year. Um, <laughs> time, time kind of flies. Um, but boy, you know, I, I've, I've told people several, so many times um, that when the Lord lays a series on my heart, it is almost without fail that that series becomes extremely relevant. And if you think about that spiritual warfare series and then you think about what's happened in the church over the last year, um, it's been relevant. Uh, it's been a very relevant series. So as I preached that series, we spoke of three enemies, if you recall. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three great enemies of God, uh, of, of humanity, really. The three enemies of our spiritual warfare. And, and I've already presented to you the devil, right? We didn't get, uh, we're not getting into any of them as, as thoroughly as we did in that series. Go back in that series if you want more thorough teaching on them. But we, we've already seen the devil. He's there, the slanderer, the liar, the accuser. We've, we've seen him... And today we're going to look again, going to bubble up to the surface again, the idea of the world, the other external enemy of God's people. And then, of course, we have the flesh, which is the internal enemy of God's people, right? And that is our sin nature. That is the part of us which um, uh, uh, is, is drawn to sin, as well as the part of us that has taken the things which are right and good, those things which God has built into us, and has twisted them through the sin nature into desiring them in a way that is outside of God's will and God's purposes. But before we dig into the world today, let's first lay the groundwork for our understanding. Satan has made his proposal to Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we read this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired... To make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. We're going to talk about Adam next week. But Eve hears all that Satan has said and she looks at the tree and she begins to consider. Whereas prior, perhaps, she had trusted the Lord, taken him at his word, lived in light of his warnings and his promises. Now, it is possible that she entertains the thought that maybe these things that Satan is saying, the doubts that Satan is casting, the, the ideas, uh, uh, the manipulation, the, the idea that maybe God is withholding, not blessing, that maybe God is afraid or is envious or is uh, angry or is mean rather than uh, uh, loving and, and providing and caring, that maybe it is that she could make life better if she took things into her own hands and if she didn't spend all of her time submitted to this other person, maybe, maybe she needs to take control. Maybe that's what, what would make her happy. So she looks at the tree. And the Bible says first, she reasoned that the tree was good for food. The tree can supply a basic necessity of life. Humans need to eat. Humans get hungry. It's no fun to feel hungry. This tree has fruit. That fruit is food. That fruit is designed by God to go into the body and to satisfy hunger. The fruit was good for food. It can supply this basic necessity of life. Sure, that necessity is already provided for abundantly in the things that God has already given. It is already provided for in who knows how many variations of other types of fruit that were on other trees in the garden that God said, of these ye may freely eat. But after all, this one that God says, ye shall not eat of it lest ye die, this is food too. This is there too. 
and it's natural, and it's accessible, and it's edible. So if it's natural and accessible and edible, if it will meet the need of my body, then why shouldn't I have it? And this has been a tactic from the beginning. This has been something which our heart has reasoned through from the beginning. It's natural, therefore it must be good. And once again, we find in our society a mindset that, uh, where, uh, where this pervades. This mindset pervades our society. The idea that if something is natural, then it must be right. If something is a natural inclination of the human heart, then by virtue of the fact that it is a natural inclination of the human heart, it must be a right inclination. It must be okay to do if I want to do it. But of course, this is a lie. But she says it can be eaten, so why shouldn't it be eaten? Then maybe she says, what will it taste like? Maybe it will taste better than the other fruit of the garden. Maybe it will make me stronger. Maybe it will be more nutritious than the other fruit of the garden. We don't know what's going through her mind per se, except that she saw that it was good for food. The tree, the fruit of the tree, appealed to the human part of her. She's human. Humans need to eat. This tree has food. She could eat the food. It would satisfy the natural urge within her to eat. The urge which was given by God. And indeed, the urge to eat is given by God, isn't it? Does that mean that every solution to, the, to our hunger is given, by, is, is given to us of God? Well, no, not necessarily. God has given us our human inclinations. That does not mean that every possible way to fulfill that human inclination is right before God. But here's what we can know that God has given us a, virtual, a virtuous outlet for the inclinations that he has built into us. And we talked about this in our marriage series, right? That God has given mankind natural desires as it relates to the need for physical intimacy. And God has baked into society a virtuous way for those desires to be fulfilled. It does not mean just because the desire exists that any satisfaction of said desires is right just because it's a satisfaction of a God-given desire. Yes, the desire is God-given, but just because the desire is God-given does not mean every possible solution or satisfaction of that desire is God-given. And so we need to be careful that we don't conflate those two in our lives. That we don't conflate the fact that we have a natural desire with the idea that every solution or satisfaction of that desire is also natural or virtuous. So Eve comes to this point. She sees this fruit, and as she sees the fruit, she recognizes that it is good for food. It fulfills the lust of the flesh. That's what this is. It's the lust of the flesh. Second, the Bible says, and it was pleasant to the eyes. The fruit of the tree looked good. We might presume this means it looked delicious. It was alluring. We don't exactly know what it means that it was pleasant to the eyes. I don't know uh, if it, it had a unique color to it or it had a unique shape or unique texture. Maybe it wasn't unique at all and she was just uh, romanticizing it a little bit because it's the thing that she can't have, which is very human, right? We all want the thing that we can't have. And if you doubt it, just spend a little bit of time around a child, right? They can have everything but one thing, and the one thing that they don't have is the thing they want. My children cannot have played with a toy for three weeks, but the moment that brother or sister picks up that toy, 
I've always wanted that toy. I've never not wanted that toy. I need that toy. That toy must be mine. And it's not just that it must be mine, but it must be mine right now. My heart has longed for that toy since as long as I can remember. And there it is in your hands. And I must have it. And this is human. One of the other things that we learn is that humans don't really get over that. They just get more sophisticated in how they manifest those things, right? Thus, we have the phrases such as keeping up with the Joneses and and, and such. So whatever it was, it was pleasant to the eye. It looked good. We're not unfamiliar with these allures in our lives, whether it be food or whether it be gadgets or whether it be fashion or whether it be whatever it might be, uh, whether it be uh, uh, um, vehicles, whatever. We live in a commercial culture, which means things are designed to appeal to the eye. So we are completely familiar with the idea of seeing something, even perhaps something which you should not have or which you can't afford or which is wrong or which is otherwise not best for you and finding it absolutely appealing or absolutely alluring from a simple visual perspective. And this allure can be very tempting, very convincing. And the Bible calls this the lust of the eyes. And then third, the Bible says that she reasoned that the tree was one to make her wise. Now remember, and we'll talk about this more next week, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, that the woman, when she partook of the fruit, was deceived. Adam, we, we see nothing in the Bible that says that Adam was deceived. Uh, much to the contrary, it would seem as though, and we'll talk about this not next week, but probably the week after, that in Adam's heart was the desire for rebellion. Um, that when Adam heard Satan's proposition, he understood all of its implications. He was able to look down the road and see what this meant for him. And he said, yeah, I want that. I want what, what, what is being offered here. But not so with Eve. To that end, we understand that she did not see this fruit and imagine in this fruit some grand design of self-deistic rebellion against God. She did not look at that and say, oh yeah, I get to be my own God. I get to rebel against God. That was not Eve's motivation. Eve was beguiled, she says. And First Timothy tells us she was Deceived, She simply thought that if she partook of this fruit, the serpent said it would make her wise. This appealed to her. She wanted to be wise. She could know more or she could be more enlightened or she could, have a, she could be a better version of herself. And that, that sounded good. She could have access to this realm of knowledge which the serpent said existed, but with which she was not familiar. And that sounded good. So she was beguiled, as she would say it later on in Genesis 3. She was deceived and she partook. And the Bible calls this idea, the idea that I, I can be more than what, 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 what God would have me to be. I can extend myself beyond God's design for me. I can, I can uh, have more. I can be more enlightened. The Bible calls that pride. So that what we have presented here is a threefold realm of temptations. The tree is good for food, that's the lust of the flesh. The tree is pleasant to the eye, that's the lust of the eyes. And the tree is desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life. And with this foundation in place, I take you to 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So 1 John is a very interesting and much misunderstood book. When you read 1 John, the most important thing to remember as you're reading 1 John is that it is not a book about how to be saved. It is a book about walking in fellowship. It is a book of which the theme of the book is fellowship. From the very first verse, the theme of the book of 1 John is fellowship, not salvation. From the very first verses of the letter, John is speaking unto a group of people that he calls children. He exhorts them to walk in a manner which will bring fullness of joy and fellowship with God. So nothing within the scope of the book is intended to draw attention to whether or not we are in Christ, but rather whether or not we are walking with Christ. And this throws many people off because as you read certain verses, if you read them outside of their context, if you read them in in, in kind of a vacuum of their own idea, it sounds very much like the text is telling you that if you don't do certain things, you aren't saved. And if you do do certain things, that you are saved. A very works-based idea of salvation. That your salvation is contingent upon the merit, the effort, or the uh, paying off of a particular debt of certain actions. And we've already talked. We've been talking in our Sunday evenings about grace and the nature of grace. And you know from the definition of the scriptures in a very fundamental way that if work, effort, merit, or debt are involved in a transaction, then that transaction is not a gracious transaction. The Bible, as it defines grace, cannot coexist with work, effort, merit, or debt. And so we we would have a real contradiction if 1 John is saying that you are not a believer unless you do these certain things and you are, 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 if, if if you do these certain other things, then you are a believer because that would be a very works-based idea of salvation. However, fortunately, when you put their verses in the proper context, this idea in 1 John goes away. And let me demonstrate with a relevant portion of Scripture. So we're here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, very much so jumping into a context here. Verse 15 says, if, the, if I love the world, then the love of the Father is not in me. And that sounds as if I, if, if, if I love the world... If I place my loyalty or affection on something in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, at least it defines the world here, then I don't love God. And if I don't love God, then how can I be a child of God? How can I be saved? But if I go back to the very beginning of the context in chapter 2, I find that this is not what John is saying. So 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6 says this, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Okay, so notice the context here. John calls his reader, 
his readers little children, right? It's a familial term intended to express his confidence that they are a part of the family of God. With John, as one who is their teacher, being in that kind of fatherly um, position. And he tells them that the purpose of him writing these things is that you sin not, right? I am writing these things unto you as you who are little children in order that you do not sin. Knowing that when we do sin, notice this, he says, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That when you do sin, Jesus is a righteous advocate before the Father for us. 1 John 1 9, we're not, we, we, we didn't read 1 John 1 9, but with 1 John 1 9 telling us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then 1 John 2 2 telling us that Jesus Christ is the propitiation, that word meaning the appeasement or the satisfaction of our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the entire world. It is inconceivable that John would, in 1 John 2 2, say that Jesus Christ has become the satisfaction for the sin of the entire world and then go on to write about how we need to do good things to be saved or not sin to be saved. Jesus has already satisfied our sin debt. He says it very plainly in 1 John 2, 2. And so we cannot remove from the context of 1 John 2, 3 and following what he has said in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, that Jesus Christ is our righteous advocate and that he has already been and become and, 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 and earned for us propitiation by becoming our propitiation, not just for us, but for every sin in the entire world. Christ has satisfied the sin debt for the world on the cross. All right, so then we take that understanding in verses 1 and 2, and we can carry that forward into verses 3 and following. Verse 3 says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Notice it does not say, And hereby we know him if we keep his commandments. It says, Hereby we know that we know him. By this we can have confidence that we are a believer as we keep God's commandments. And so we find within this, this uh, concept not the idea that you're not a believer if you don't keep his commandments, but rather the idea that the confidence that you have that you are a believer is in that you keep his commandments because this is how we ought to walk. Verse 6 says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So if I'm not walking the way Christ walked, I'm not going to have any confidence that I am in Christ. And as I walk the way he walked, because I can only walk the way Christ walked as, I, as a child of God, then it fills within me confidence. And this goes back to the idea, pastor, how is it possible that I can know I'm a Christian? I don't always feel like a Christian. Maybe I don't remember uh, the time that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Or I, I only, uh, I've been told that I had a time where I accepted Christ and I have a baptism certificate that's hanging on my wall or that's in my file cabinet that says that I've been baptized, which means I should be saved, but I don't remember these things. And if I don't feel this way and I don't remember these things, then, then how can I have any confidence that I'm a believer? Well, that's what 1 John is intended to answer. 1 John is intended to tell you how it is that you can walk day in and day out with confidence. And it has nothing to do with how you feel, thank God, because feelings are fleeting. As I've said many a time, I can be having a bad day, then a plate of cookies is put in front of me, now I'm having a good day. If it is that easy, 
to change my feelings, I'm really glad that I don't have to rely upon my feelings to know whether I'm in Christ. Nor do I have to rely upon my memory and thank God for that. It's been, what, nine months or so since I collapsed. And in the, in, in the, the, the months following that collapse, if, if many of you recall, things were very slowly coming back to memory. My, 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 uh, my brain dumped all the short-term memory uh, uh, the day that, that my, my heart decided it didn't want to beat properly anymore, right? And my brain dumped several weeks of short-term memory. That's a very vulnerable feeling. That's a, I mean, I, 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 uh, I received a small little snippet of what it must be like to start to lose your memory, where you can't remember things that happened just a couple of weeks ago. It's a very vulnerable feeling. If I can't remember whether or not I've saved, if I can't remember what I felt, if I can't remember the experience, do I just have no assurance? Am I really completely dependent upon the, the synapses and the neurons firing in my brain properly in order to know whether or not I'm a believer? Or can I wake up in the morning and as I walk through my day be instilled with absolute positive confidence that I am in Christ? I absolutely can. And that's what 1 John is about. That's what 1 John is telling me. That I know that I know him when I keep his commandments. And of course, we'd go on and we'd see other ones that we're not going to talk about today, right? I know that I know him when I love the brethren. I know that I know him. And, and we, we, we've gone through those confidences before no doubt we'll go through them again. But that's the idea here. This is, what G- this is what John is saying in 1 John. Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the entire world, not just mine, not just yours, but also the sins of the man who will go to his dying day shaking his fist at Christ. Therefore, there is a desire for John. He's writing that, that, that their joy may be full that the joy of the Lord might be in them and that the joy might be full. He is writing that they may know that they know him and this is how you know that you know him, that you keep his commandments. To this end, we ought to abide in him. It, because those who walk in, uh, in his way ought to abide in him. And then we come to... Um, yes, yeah, so if you're failing to keep God's commandments... What John is testifying to here is that you will lack a fundamental confidence that is intended in the believer because you're out of fellowship with the Father, so your joy will not be full. This will lead you to feelings of alienation and feelings of distance, and it has nothing to do with whether or not you are in Christ, but everything to do with the fact that you're separated from Christ because of your sin. And this will bring about these feelings because you're not near to Christ. And that's because you're grieving the Spirit through unconfessed sin. So this is the context, and I'm not going to continue to explain it. I'd love to. Maybe we'll do First John at some point here. But we're going to get back into verses 15 and 16. No, we're not. Not yet. Verses 4 and 5. John says in verse 4 and 5, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth his commandment, keepeth not his commandments, excuse me, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So you get a bonus two more verses of explanation here. I should not be surprised that I don't feel like a believer if I'm claiming Christ but living outside of obedience. 
living instead in unconfessed sin and selfishness. Don't be surprised when you don't feel like a believer. I should not be surprised when I'm living this way. But when I keep God's word and I'm obeying his commandments and I'm confessing my sin when I commit it and I'm forsaking it because I've confessed it, acknowledging God's authority, justifying God's commandments, that's what confession is. In these things, the love of God is perfected in me. Right? The idea of perfection does not mean sinlessly perfect. Perfection means completed. I feel the fullness of the love of God, the love of God which is shed abroad in my heart through the Holy Ghost which is given unto me at the moment of salvation, but of which if I'm grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit of God, I will not be feeling at any given moment that I am indeed quenching or grieving the Spirit of God. And as I keep the commandments of God, as I keep his word, the love of God is perfected in me. And hereby we know that we are in him because the love of God is perfected in us as the spirit of God bears out his fruit in my life of joy. Now, back to verses 15 and 16. And I gave all of that to you so that you can understand what it means when John says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father is not being perfected in him, right? That's what verse five says, that the love of the Father is perfected in the one who keeps his word. So if we're not keeping God's word, if we are instead loving the world, we are not receiving the perfected nature of the love of God, we are thus falling short of the perfected love of God. The love of the Father is not in him. This does not mean that I have rejected Christ as my Savior. This simply means I am not exercising the proper love that is due unto God as a follower of him and as a child of God, okay? So Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, no man can serve two masters, right? Right? You'll love the, one and hate the other, uh, love the one and hate the other or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Every decision I make in this life is in service to some priority or claim. So when the Bible says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. I can even drink I can, I, I can take my, my water bottle and I can drink it to the glory of God. I'm doing, everything I'm doing, I'm doing in service to something, in service to someone. Every decision I make, whether that be the claim of the world upon my life through its promises or the claim of God upon my life through his promises, I'm serving someone. And the same can be said of love. Every decision of my life expresses love for something. When I choose to follow the things which God commands and which God commends, I am choosing to do so out of love for the Father. When I choose to follow the things which the world commands and commends, I am choosing to do so out of love for the world. And the command here is that we not love the world. Because to whatever degree I am following after a love for the world by keeping its commendations and commands, I am doing so at the expense of a love for the Father, keeping his commendations and commands. By definition... To the degree that I am placing my love upon the world, I am withholding my love from the Father. By definition, to the degree that I am placing my love on the Father, I am withholding my love from the world because they are polar opposites. If we define the world properly. And that's what we'll be talking about here in just a moment. See, we need to be careful because when I say the world, 
the people in this room might be thinking of a number of different things. Maybe there are some kids in here and they're hearing pastors say, love not the world, love not the world. Pastors saying, love not the world. And maybe you're going to be driving home and that child's going to look at mom or dad and say, see, mom or dad, I told you geography was of the devil. Love not the world. No geography anymore. It's, it is the world. It is the devil. No more geography. That's not what the Bible means when it says the world. There are people in here who hear, love not the world. And they say, hmm, well, maybe that's leisure time. Maybe that's relaxation. Maybe that's enjoying a day on the lake or going for a hike. I mean, after all, I go, into, I, I go for a hike because I want to be in nature. And I look around and I say, these trees are beautiful. And then all of a sudden it comes to your mind, love not the world. Oh, these trees, right? And, 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 and you just got to get out of that forest. No, that's not, that's not what the Bible means when it says, love not the world. Okay? Modern conveniences, modern technologies, these things are not the world either. That's not what John is calling the world. Those things might be, depending on your proclivities and your inclinations, a path to the world, but they are not in and of themselves the world as the Bible defines it. How does the Bible define the world? And we talked about this with love just a couple of weeks ago, right? The idea that the way the Bible defines love is not how the world defines love. I use that world, world even there, right? Not how the unbelieving uh, the unbelievers around us define it, not how culture defines it. And we need to be careful with definitions. When the world is defined in the Bible, the idea of the world, it is not speaking in terms of material goods or even activities. It's an attitude or a compulsion that drives the things that we do or the things that we have. And so the Bible defines the world this way. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That is all that is in the world. Are these three things. And I've already touched on this, of course, at the beginning of our sermon when we considered Eve, but let's think through them together. The word lust in our minds is a very negative word. If we use the word lust in our vernacular, uh, it's, it's something which is inherently negative. But in the Greek, the word is not inherently negative at all. It speaks of an intense longing or desire for something. And we would only add the word lust to it if it's a desire for something that is not ours by right. If it's a desire for something that we should not have or that is out of balance in our lives. However, the word is not necessarily bad in and of itself. When realized in the context of a good thing, the desire for something that is good, that is mine, that is mine by right, it is a good word. It is a fine thing. In fact, this evening, we will partake together. It's the first of the month, which means we will partake together in the Lord's table. And from time to time, when we partake together in the Lord's table, I go to read the historical account of the institution of that ordinance in Luke 22. And in Luke 22, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And one of the things that I bring up semi-regularly when we talk about this is that that word desire there, when Jesus says, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you, is the same word here, lust. A deep and abiding longing for something. It's not inherently a negative word. So once again, the problem is not that you feel intense longings or desires for things. The problem is when those intense longings and desires are for things which stand in opposition to the principles and precepts of God. 
When you are longing and desiring something that God does not desire for you. And that is lust. And in this case, the first of, the, uh, of these is the lust of the flesh. An intense desire and longing for a fulfillment of a human appetite in a way that is outside of God's design or outside of God's principles. The human body has an appetite for food. God has ordained that mankind enjoy food in temperance and in moderation for the sake of pleasure and nourishment. And this is good. But to yield to the lust of the flesh compels overeating, compels intemperance, compels me to eat things that are not healthy for my body or consume things that are not healthy for my body. And thus I am indulging in the lust of my flesh as I pursue the longing or desire in a manner that is outside of God's prescription. The human body has an appetite for physical intimacy. God has ordained that mankind enjoy such gratification through the marriage relationship unto procreation and pleasure. But to yield to the lust of of the flesh compels fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. And this is when I am indulging in the lust of the flesh. Again, it is not that the actual desire itself is wrong, but it is the outworking of that desire unto an end that is outside of God's design. That's when it becomes a lust of the flesh. The human body has a desire for comfort, has a desire for enjoyment. God has ordained that mankind enjoy the fruit of his labor and the comforts that it can provide. But to yield to the lust of the flesh compels me to get into debt, to chase easy money, to waste my time and resources upon things that do not profit, to be lazy. And this is me indulging the lust of the flesh. It is taking a natural desire for enjoyment and for leisure and extending it beyond that which God has designed to where it becomes a sin to me. And that's the lust of the flesh. Eve saw the fruit that it was good for food and her flesh lusted for that which was contrary to the commands and the character of God. She was being tempted by the lust of the flesh. And this goes, they all actually connect to each other very well, much in hand with the lust of the eyes. God has ordained humanity to appreciate beauty. There are reasons why celebrities tend to be beautiful people. Because the human eye appreciates beauty. There are reasons why car manufacturers put so much effort into the visual designs of their vehicles. Why don't they just make ugly metal boxes? They'd be cheaper if they were just ugly metal boxes. Well, because dudes wouldn't purchase them if they were ugly metal boxes. But they will purchase one all the time and they will put all sorts of other things on top of them and they will buy stuff to put on the stuff that they bought to put on the stuff that they bought for them if it looks cool, right? And we're not just talking about trucks. We're talking about everything, right? There's a reason why clothing comes in so many variations, trends, colors, and it's changing all the time. There's a reason why electronic gizmos have all of the flashiness and they tweak a little bit here and change a little something there and put a new coating on it here and make it a new color there, make it a little bit of a different design there. There's a reason why these things happen and it's because humans are drawn to pretty things. Now, this is not a bad thing. God has made us this way. Humanity has an appreciation for beauty, which is given by God for our pleasure and for our delight. It's one of the things that separates us from the rest of the created beings, our tremendous appreciation for beauty. It does things like afford us lovely stained glass and beautiful architecture and 
people actually putting time and effort into how they design things to make them look in a way that is, is appealing, not just functional. And this is a blessing from God. The problem comes when we allow our appreciation for beauty to override our appreciation for character. And of course, a great example of this is Proverbs 31.30, right? Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Being visual creatures, every man in here thanks God that women are pleasant to look upon. I thank God for that. I am happy that women are pleasant to look upon. But if the visual allure of a woman overrides her character in our minds... Be that as we would pursue a relationship or as we would regard the treatment of them or anything of the sort, then the desire of the eye has overridden the design of God in our hearts. That's just an example. Beauty in clothing, beauty in architecture, beauty in design, all of these are blessings to be enjoyed as long as their allures do not override the deeper principles of the character and the commands of God. That's when it becomes a lust of the eye and indulging beyond that which God has intended. And when they do, that's where they fall into category. So Eve saw the fruit on that day. And it was pleasant to the eye, and she was tempted to allow the beauty of the fruit to override what she knew of the commands of God. It was pleasant to the eye, therefore it must be good. If it looks good, then it must be good, right? That's the lust of the eyes. The longings of our physical urges tempt us to override the commands and the character of God. That's the lust of the flesh. The longings of visual stimulus tempt us to override the commands and character of God. That's the lust of the eyes. One more, and that's the pride of life. We've seen since the beginning of Genesis 1 that God has created an order to things. The physical world is ordered. The spiritual world is ordered. And a part of this order is hierarchy. The design of God in and through authority. 1 Samuel 15, 23 says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And the root of rebellion is when I step outside of my ordained hierarchy of authority and I take privileges which are not mine by right or by design. And this comes through an exalted sense or prioritization of myself. When I place myself above God's design, when I place myself above others, when I prioritize myself. A couple of months ago, we memorized Proverbs 18.12, which told us that before honor is humility. We know from James chapter 4, verse 6, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If the lust of the flesh happens when I allow how I feel to override God's doctrines, God's truths, and the lust of the eyes happens when I allow what I see to override God's doctrines, God's truths, God's design, then the pride of life happens when I allow what I think to override God's doctrines, God's truths, God's designs. When I step outside of my place in God's order of things and I take upon myself that which is not just my place, but that which is not my right to take on. Eve thought on the idea of becoming a god and knowing good and evil, being enlightened, being a better version of herself in her own estimation. And this was alluring. What if she could become more? What if she could become, what if she could reach a higher potential? Sure, it wasn't what God wanted for her. 
It wasn't what God designed for her. It wasn't what God ordained for her. But maybe she could forge a better path for herself than God had forged for her. Maybe she knew better than God what was best for her. Maybe her place in God's design wasn't the right place. Maybe her place in God's design wasn't the best place. Maybe she had a better idea of what was her place than God did. Maybe she thought what, what she thought mattered more than what God thought. Maybe she knew better than God. And on that day so many years ago, the first man and woman were introduced to the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The philosophies and lures that, uh, lures that stand in contradiction and opposition to the character and the commands of God. And these allures promise great, great things. If only we will pursue them instead of God. But they're empty promises. Every time. And this is the point, Christian. Every day the world bombards us. And again, by the world, I don't mean the people. I don't mean the things. I mean the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Every day these philosophies, humanism, the philosophies of Satanism, bombard us. And in this idea, I have four thoughts. I'm actually just going to give you the top three. We'll cover the, next, the, the, the fourth one next week. But I have three thoughts that I'd like to leave with you as it relates to the danger of the world as the Bible defines it in our lives. Point number one. Whoop. Be careful with your definition of the world. And we've talked about this, but I do want to make this very clear. One of the problems that exists in any closed system, and Christianity is a closed system, is that we assume our own language. Have you ever been talking to someone about Bible things who's not a Christian, and then you realize you've been using words like justification and sanctification and uh, uh, imputed righteousness or any of those things, and then you, you stop by and you say, wait a minute, I've got to be speaking a foreign language to this person because they're not in the church, right? They, have, they aren't around this stuff all the time. They aren't singing about it and reading about it and talking about it and praying about it all the time. And you realize there are a lot of words that we use on a day-by-day -day basis that the rest of the world doesn't even use at all. And this problem is not just one that's, that, that relates to us speaking to the world around us, but it can also be a problem in the church, where we say, love not the world. And we say that from generation to generation. And as we say, love not the world from generation to generation, the generations who are growing up in the church begin to get a muddied picture of what the world is. And when this happens, we can begin to reject things that are perfectly within the scope of the abundant blessings of God. There is a definitional difference between the things that comprise the physical world and the things which are defined in the world or in the Bible as the world. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of it for yourself. Don't lose sight of it as we raise all of these dear young ones. Don't lose sight of it as you interact with the unbelieving world around you. 
Meat and drink and material goods and creativity and beauty and pleasure are things which are given by God to man out of the abundance of his goodness, which in themselves are not wrong. It is not a wrong thing to enjoy yourself. It is not a wrong thing to relax. It is not a wrong thing to enjoy the world that is around you. Ecclesiastes gives us good insight into this. Let us be careful to distinguish between these in the manner that we live our lives between those things and what the Bible defines as the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Not just in how we live our lives, but also how we reflect to the next generation. Point number two. It isn't a sin to experience lust only to be drawn away by lust. I've said several times in this sermon that the things which comprise the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, are things which are natural to the human condition. In many cases, even things which are good gifts from God, only they have been twisted, perverted, taken out of balance, and extended beyond that which God has intended them to be, and so into opposition to God's character. Many a Christian has fallen in, into the trap of, of guilt, of shame, of self, self-loathing on the basis of the fact that they experience desires, that they want and enjoy the new shiny thing, that they appreciate physical beauty, that they enjoy good food and pleasurable experiences. And this is built into us by God. Remember, as I said, the word for lust is not an inherently negative word. It only becomes bad, negative, wrong, when it's taken by our sin nature and it is twisted away from that which God has given to us and designed for us in virtue into that which is not right before him. James tells us this. He says in James 1, verses 14 and 15, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So our desires within us will inherently make us susceptible to temptation. But temptation is not the same as sin. Being tempted is not the same as sinning. Temptation is defined by my natural human desires being drawn beyond that which is right before God and into that which is indulgent or disobedient. When I am taking what is a natural desire, I'm not tempted in areas where I don't have a natural desire, right? There are certain things that I am tempted for more than others. I can sit all day and watch cake go by me without having a problem. But you put one cookie in front of me, I now have a problem, right? It is not necessarily the fact. I, I'm just, a cake, I mean, I enjoy cake, but cake does not allure me as cookies do. So it is not a problem for me to see a cake in front of me and say, nah, last night we were at this deal and they had these cupcakes and I'm, uh, they looked quite delicious. But you know what? I'm not particularly allured by the cupcake. The cupcake is fine. The cupcake, I'm sure, tasted good, but I don't need a cupcake. I was able to pass on the cupcakes. I could not pass on the cookies. I ate a cookie. I had to eat a cookie. The cookies were there. I was there. I was there. Cookie is there. I'm eating a cookie, right? That's just how it goes. There is a temptation there. Now, again, naturally, the desire for a cookie is not wrong in and of itself. I'm giving you a, 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 an example. Of course, if I ate 15 or 20 cookies, then I would be indulgent, right? I would be going beyond that which is right and healthy and fine for my body outside of moderation and into a lust of the flesh. 
And I say that to say this, Christian. Expect temptation because you're human. Which means you are going to desire things in the flesh, through the eyes, and according to self. The sin is not to have the desires. This makes you human. And the desires which are in line with God's commands and character are yours to enjoy freely to the extent that they align with God's design. And the desires which are not in line with God's character, his commands, his desires, and his design are not yours to enjoy. And when you indulge those desires beyond that which God has designed, you are being enticed to sin, to miss the mark of God's character. And when you give in to this enticement, your lust brings forth sin. And then sin, of course, when it is finished, brings forth death. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Death being separation from God, a falling out of fellowship and thus out of fullness of joy that First John talks about. The sin comes when you indulge these desires and so miss the mark of God's character and God's commands. And that is sin. And take note of this. Because many a Christian lives in such frustration that they are tempted. It's no fun. I'm looking for the day when this mortal puts off its mortality and is clothed in immortality and I don't have to deal with those anymore. But until that day, if you're human, you're going to deal with them. Expect it. Don't feel guilty. Just don't give in. Right? And that brings us to our third point. Let's talk about the temptations themselves. The promises of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The promises of the world. They are exaggerated and fleeting. Don't give in. The old saying goes, sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and give you less than it promised. And this is so very true. As we've spoken of regarding Eve in the garden... Satan wants Eve to think that God has withheld something good, even superior to what God had given them. And the allures of the world claim all of that, uh, claim this all the time. The, the, the allures of the world all the time, they claim this idea. That if only you had that thing, if only you could do that thing, if only you could be that person or be in that place, you would be happy. You would be the king of your own domain. You would be satisfied. And their lies. But you don't have to take my word for it. Anecdotal evidence all, all around you. I've given you the illustration before, which I think connects to you. I'd imagine it connects to you of children on the day after Christmas, where they've gotten all of their heart's desires only to get bored with them in a week, and then to have new heart's desires. But, you know, we don't even need anecdotal evidence. We have the word of God itself. We have the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes this book. He is a man who understands above any man what God's word commanded. He understood wisdom. He was wiser than any man who had ever lived on the face of the earth. God had given that to him as a gift. And in wisdom, he understood his relationship to things implicitly because God had given him the wisdom. But then he set out and he said, is what I have as pertaining to wisdom Real. 
So he said, I'm going to test wisdom. I'm going to try it. I'm going to see if it checks out. And so he indulges. He indulges the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He indulges everything. He indulges anything that money can buy. He builds monuments unto himself. He gets the best musicians in the world. He uh, commissions artists. He does everything he can to, uh, to pursue the pleasures of the flesh. He, he uh, indulges in, in inordinate amounts of alcohol and gets himself uh, uh, um, uh, drunk. He, he pursues women so much so that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. He withholds nothing from himself that he desires. He pursues his lusts to their fullest end. And you know the phrase that he uses regularly in the book, Vanity and vexation of spirit. And then his conclusion is found in the final two verses of Ecclesiastes. And he says this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. He says, it was all vanity and vexation of spirit. And not only that, but then now I get to stand before God and answer for it at the end of all of that vanity and vexation of spirit. Emptiness. Sin always takes you farther than it said it would, keeps you longer than it says it will, and it gives you less than what it promises. Nothing that sin could allure you to do. Nothing that is outside of God's stated will that sin could entice you to, 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 to indulge in is new. It's all been experienced before. Others have experienced it before. The temptations you're going through are not new temptations, nor are they exclusive. Are you struggling with lying? You're not the only one. You're struggling with the desire to, for stuff materialism. You're not the only one. You're struggling with lust in your thought life. You're not the only one. Not the only one in this room. Not the, certainly not the only one in history. Men, women, humans, we've struggled with these things since the beginning, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Thousands of years of wisdom validates the same reality that Adam and Eve had in the garden that you and I cannot do better than the way that God has designed. And to try to do better than the way God has designed is a fool's errand. And it's going to leave the inevitable results of vanity and vexation of spirit. And unfortunately, many of us will still have to find this out the hard way. But if you have wisdom, you don't have to. It's not your lot in life to have to find out the hard way if you'll only listen. Not to me, to the Word of God. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and then following through with every single generation of humanity, all of the wisdom literature, all of the evidence, the historical evidence through the nation of Israel, all of the, the, the doctrinal teachings of the New Testament, they point us toward this end. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because those things are a lie. It was a lie in the garden, and it's been a lie ever since. The 
promises of the world are grand, they are glorious in concept, but in practice they are weak and they are beggarly. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow, leaving with you nothing to show for their time and effort but sorrow and regret. To this end, Christian, love not the world. Now, I said I'm skipping this last point. We'll talk about it next week. The allures of the world are easier to justify in groups. The point, as it's going to come up next week, is this. Sin loves company. That's why it's so important that you watch who you make your friends, that, you, that you're careful about your closer associates. Why? Because sin is always more comfortable in groups. We'll talk about that next week. But for this week, we have these points. Be careful with your definition of the world. Make sure it's right. Remember that it isn't sin to experience lust. That's temptation. Temptation is not sin. It's only a sin to be drawn away by lust. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And finally, for this morning, the promises of the world are exaggerated and fleeting. So the call is that we be vigilant, that we allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, that we exhort one another daily while it is called today and so much the more as we see the day approaching, that we might be reminded that we love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. On that day, so many years ago, Satan came to Eve and he said, eat of this fruit, it will be, it it is not, you will not die, but it is uh, good to make one wise and she saw that the fruit was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was a tree to make one wise. She was enticed by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and she ate of the fruit, and she gave to her husband also, and he did eat. And the rest, they say, is history. But we need not follow in those footsteps. Temptations will come. May God help us not to indulge them, not to love the world, but rather to love the Father and to walk in His commandments. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.